Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with David Lambert. He's an associate professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and winner of the 2016 AAR Book Award in Textual Studies. He's here to speak to us about his book, How Repentance Became Biblical, Judaism, Christianity, and the Interpretation of Scripture, which was published by Oxford University Press. Congratulations, David, and thanks for joining me. How are you? Thank you, Christian. Uh, very well. Uh, and thank you for uh, arranging this interview. It's really a wonderful book, and you aim to do a whole lot. So maybe we can just start off with what were you hoping to do in this book through these kind of, let's say, multiple paths of investigation that, that you do throughout the different sections of the book? What was your objective overall? So my overall objective, and I did have a lot more kind of particular interests in the topic as well, uh, but my, my overall objective was to show that we really need to reconceive how we conceptualize biblical studies as a field. Uh, now that we've come to recognize the extent to which various modes of reading, strategies for of interpretation, have informed how the Bible have been read through the centuries, and that many of these same strategies uh, inform those very scholars who are part of the enterprise of modern biblical criticism, who would otherwise maintain that they exist in some ways apart from these traditional readings. Um, but realizing that, in fact, they're very much part of the way in which Jews and Christians have been reading the Bible for, for centuries, uh, what does it mean to then try to engage that full range of the Bible's history? That is to say, not just attempting to go back uh, and understand, reconstruct its original context, uh, but also to take into consideration in, in a critical fashion uh, where the Bible traveled subsequent uh, to that and what it has meant and how those continued uses and purposes and understandings um, that, the, that the Bible has uh, been subject to, um, uh, how that can inform a broader conversation around uh, the Bible in its meaning, one that doesn't necessarily favor original sense over later subsequent meaning, but rather fosters a mutually reinforcing and productive conversation uh, around the various layers of its of its meaning. Now, the thematic focus of the book is this concept or category of repentance, and you look at it in a textual sense, but then also think about these interpretive positionalities of modern readers. So can you talk a little bit about contemporary understandings of the term and what you actually start to discover when you look at the textual evidence in biblical texts? There, there, there are different ways of, of, of talking about this, and I'd like to start actually from, from the broadest uh, framework that I think is at play here, which ultimately has to do with not just the concept of repentance, uh, but ultimately our understanding of the nature of the self, of human nature. Uh, and our, the concept of self that has emerged, and, and this is a history that has been, has been traced um, quite successfully, I think, in uh, books such as Charles Taylor's Sources of the Self um, and, and other types of often more his, historical period-specific type works. Um, but this, the, the way in which the self in our contemporary forms of discourse is frequently seen as having a certain kind of interior space, that this interior space is what, where what really matters to the self transpires, 
uh, where our truest selves uh, reside, where our feelings reside, our thoughts reside, our memories, and that these somehow really constitute who we are as human beings. Well, repentance is ultimately part of that kind of emerging sense of self that we already see, and Taylor already has traced uh, and others, to uh, the, the kind of Hellenistic world um, around the turn of the common era with people like Augustine and, 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 and others. Um, and repentance fits in because it is ultimately a sort of mental act. It's this act of looking back uh, over a past deed or over, a, over your life um, and experiencing some element of what it, in uh, certainly the kind of Greek terminology could, could be thought of as a, a sort of pain, uh, a mental pain, a form of suffering that's caused by the realization that you've made certain mistakes um, and that that's had a impact upon your, your life. And this, of course, serves uh, very important purposes within Judaism and Christianity, both as a form of uh, initiation into the religious community. So it's a way of reflecting upon your prior life without, uh, with, uh, outside of the community and repudiating that formal life, entering into a new life, but also internally to the community if you've done something that might place you outside of it, this is a mechanism that allows you to essentially govern yourself from within. Um, so you are able to feel contrition, to repent of your sin, uh, and thereby remain a part of that, um, part of that community. So um, the interesting thing about, about all of this, as I said, kind of fits into the broader framework of thinking about the self, but when we go back to the biblical material where we so often actually, which we so often uh, use to locate the origins of the concept, uh, it's, it becomes much harder to actually see the concept as I just articulated it um, as functioning. Uh, so, uh, for instance, where, I, where things really got started for me, um, was I was just um, kind of surveying the biblical material um, one day and, and looking particularly at cases of fasting. And I was very surprised to discover that contrary to the way in which fasting is thought about as part of a kind of penitential discipline within Judaism and Christianity, fasting, rather than appearing in connection to anything like repentance, really consistently appeared in connection to things like prayer, uh, things like mourning. Uh, things that had to do with a way of manifesting one's bodily distress. And, and, and that put it in a, in a quite different framework uh, for me and really started to get me thinking uh, about where this concept uh, ultimately might have developed uh, and, and, and how it might have, in, in, in many respects, been read back into the uh, biblical material rather than actually originating there. Yeah, and this is one of the key things you do in this book that I think is valuable for others is you really pinpoint that meaning is not held within the biblical sources but with readers and which you call a, a penitential lens. Could you talk a little bit about how and why this reading practice emerged? The, the penitential lens is really a quite, quite complex series of reading strategies that I see as uh, somewhat cutting through various historical periods. Uh, ostensibly, this started off, for the most part, as a concern to ground 
the emergent concept of repentance, the concept that had become so important within Judaism and Christianity. One of the things that happens uh, happens in early Judaism and Christianity is very much the development of a kind of insider technical religious terminology. Uh, and repentance, which in Hebrew would have been tshuva, uh, and in, in, in Greek, metanoia, uh, those two terms certainly loomed large uh, in, in, in the world of of ancient Jews and, and, and Christians alike. Uh, and so the question, you know, really became just on a very basic level, you know, where does that concept come from? And, and so in the case, for instance, of, of tshuva, uh, the very term itself was an attempt to answer that question. The term tshuva uh, comes from the biblical root shuv, uh, usually translated as return or going back, turning back. Um, and by calling their concept of repentance tshuva, they were alluding to the use of this phrase, uh, among the the early prophets, and the famous phrase, return to the Lord. And so the claim was being made that essentially this is what the early prophets uh, were talking about. Now, I think when you subject this to kind of semantic analysis, you're able to see that there's significant differences between those uses. But it, it shows one of the important strategies that became part of the penitential lens, namely the promotion of certain words to the level of what I would call universals. So certain terms, in this case, Chuva, repentance, comes to be seen as a universal concept that's transhistorical in nature, that's univocal in nature as well. Uh, and this is one of the main techniques that's used in the penitential lens. But but other you know other way other aspects of Jewish and Christian history as well, whereby concepts are come to be seen as universals by essentially imagining a more flattened out meaning that runs through the core and runs through uh, the core sources, the, the basic originating sources of, of Judaism and Christianity. So that, that was one example of the penitential lens. Another uh, very sophisticated uh, example of how this lens works is through the process that you might think of as psychologization. And this becomes very important for the interpretation of ritual within Judaism and Christianity as well. If you're faced with what would seem to be a behavioral, material performance of a ritual of the sort that we frequently find in the Bible's descriptions. And now I'm, I am focusing on, on the Hebrew Bible, uh, mostly in my comments. Uh, the, the, the problem that this poses for Jews and Christians who are living in a world in which there's an emerging sense that what's important itself is in, in interior, is that these performances start to seem as external performances as potentially even superficial, devoid of meaning. And so rituals like fasting are not imagined to be significant in and of themselves. So the physical performance of not eating is seen as only possibly getting meaning if it somehow corresponds to something that's happening inside, something that's internal. Uh, and only then is it seen as substantial, only then is it seen as sincere and as a meaningful religious act. So part of the penitential lens is this very process of transforming performance into a category which can only receive its meaning based on a, uh, a divide between the outer and the, and the inner. And a lot of the work that I was trying to do in thinking about how this lens works was to ask the question in a world like I think our contemporary world uh, has started to become in which we are no longer comfortable entirely with these dichotomies between mind and body, between outside and inside, um, in which we're looking for more holistic ways of building a sense of self. Is there a possibility of going back 
and rereading these biblical sources that have been claimed by subsequent generation, generations of readers in the service of this outer inner dichotomy, is it possible to find alternatives present there? And if so, um, wouldn't that provide for us a, a really tremendously uh, powerful resource for questioning some of the dominance that this kind of um, dualistic thinking has, has really held for us? And this is uh, really the heart of your book, is examining these dominant readings and then exploring these al alternative interpretive possibilities. You've mentioned briefly many of them already, fasting and prayer and this language of return. Do you think you can kind of walk us through a little more closely one of these examples, both how it's usually read in a dominant reading, but then also the possible readings that you look at once we remove this penitential lens? I often, when, when asked this question, I, I often uh, talk about the case of fast. But I, I'd actually I'd like to try to some, try something a little bit different and talk about confession instead. Fasting was one of the first examples that really occurred to me when I was starting this this research. Confession was one of the last cases that I found to be most difficult at first, uh, but then in many ways um, most conv convincing. So confession, of course, um, as a f uh, is, is fundamental both to, to Judaism, Judaism and Christianity. The formula for confession is is relatively uh, stable uh, and in many ways resembles the biblical form of confession, which is to say something more or less along the lines that I have sinned. Now what's interesting about that statement uh, is that uh, it does not declare the purpose of why you would utter that particular speech act. We have assumed that the reason why, why you would say I have sinned is that you are expressing uh, perhaps contrition, um, looking for some sort of, of, of forgiveness, but certainly with a penitent attitude. So much so that um, uh, Maimonides, uh, writing in the, uh, the, the great medieval Jewish uh, philosopher and also uh, legal scholar, uh, when he came to codify the laws of repentance, uh, he hit upon this commandment to confess, uh, which is found in Leviticus and Numbers, uh, as the basis for the commandment to repent when you have sinned. Uh, and, but he was struck by a certain problem. You know, if it's ultimately about repentance, then why doesn't it say so? Why, don't, why doesn't it say, uh, I have sinned, and therefore, uh, I'm, I, I, you know, I, and, I, and subsequently I've felt sorry about it, and therefore, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to make sure I don't do this again. So, so, interestingly enough, when Maimonides comes to write the confessional formula, he actually adds all of that in. He adds in the element of contrition, he adds in the element of a mental determination not to sin again. And it's really striking when you read his formulation and then compare it to the biblical formulation, what's not present in the biblical formulation and why that might be the case. So I went back to the biblical material and tried to think about uh, that question and, and, and think about what might be going on, especially against a interpretive framework in which we perhaps want to move beyond that dualistic sense that the speech corresponds necessarily to something that's just an internal feeling and, and that what really matters is that expression of the, of, of, of the contrition. And sure enough, when you look at the biblical material, you'll start to realize that the, that emotional component uh, that what we see as the truest component, the depth, the sincerity, uh, that's not the 
overall framework of self in which they're working with. And it's not because they would have accepted insincerity. That's one of the tricky things about talking about this. Um, it's so hard for us to get beyond the sincerity paradigm that as soon as we say it's not about interiority, then people start imagining that it's just hollow ritual or it's just, you know, it, it's, it's insincere in some way. And that's not what I'm suggesting. Instead, it seems like the confessional formula is a way of establishing the state that you fundamentally are in. So if you sin against another person, when you confess, what you are essentially doing is you are acknowledging the way whereby before you were the victimizer and you victimized this person who now is in front of you, you are now recognizing that you exist in a fundamentally compromised position vis-a-vis that former victim. So the victimizer goes before the victim and now says, I have sinned against you. By declaring that state of sin, the victimizer is accepting the actual relational state that he or she is supposed to exist in and now must exist in on a consequence of their sin vis-a-vis the person who was formerly uh, their victim. And the same thing applies when you go before God and you say, I have sinned against you. You are now in a condemned state vis-a-vis the deity or vis-a-vis whomever you have sinned against. But placing yourself in that state is the beginning toward being able to move out of it. Because at that point, it then becomes possible to consider what are the kind of reparations that are necessary to undo that uh, relational state of, of, of guilt. So guilt here is a state of being rather than a uh, psychological state. And I think that even has some repercussions really for how we understand confession as it develops subsequently within Judaism and Christianity. That is to say, I don't think Judaism and Christianity wholly uh, and unequivocally give themselves over to that kind of uh, more dichotomous thinking. Uh, So this going back to the biblical material uh, and trying to look for alternatives can also inform the subsequent history uh, as well. For instance, um, on the the Yom Kippur uh, liturgy, for the uh, Day of Atonement, uh, we find extensive confessions of sin, all kinds of sins uh, that the individual confessing surely has not uh, committed, uh, and, and, and uttered without any reference to the emotional state of the one who is, who is, who is confessing. And what I, want to, what I would suggest about that material as well is that really the people there are going before their God and saying, look, you know, we've all done these things. Um, this is therefore the state of need. This is the state of difficulty that we exist in vis-a-vis you. We really need you to come forth now and to make this day a day in which there is successful atonement for us. And all of that is done with a profound sense of, of need, a profound sense of, of the incompleteness of the people. So I don't think this is lacking in sincerity. And yet the emphasis there is not first and foremost, am I as an individual properly feeling everything that I need to feel, but rather on the speech act itself, the declaration that we are in need, we have done these things wrong, uh, and therefore we are now turning uh, to God to uh, try to resolve those uh, difficulties that in fact uh, we've brought about through our own actions. 
Now, you, you go into detail like this throughout the book, and unfortunately there's a lot we can't discuss, but I'm hoping you could finish up our conversation with thinking about how you might imagine that others in the study of religion will, will benefit from your work. You know, what I was really trying to do in the work I was doing with the Bible uh, and the question of how we read today is to try to create the possibility for a critical dialogue. Where, uh, whereas I, I, I so frequently find um, a, a much more kind of monologic sort of, of, of argument. Uh, persons arguing for this position or for that position and even its ethical necessity. The reality is that, uh, and I feel this myself as, as an individual, I see this in my students uh, as well, that, that we are often living these complex and even conflicted lives. We're, we're, we're living in, in, in a moment in which there are so many different kinds of discourses uh, that are out there that, are, that, 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 that work upon us, that have meaning for us, and that what a project like this can do is to enable us to really speak in multiple voices and learn to speak in multiple voices at the same time. And so this is really the exercise that I engage in with my students as well. I, I, I try to make them aware of the interpretive assumptions with which they are approaching the biblical material, or any material for that matter, but the Bible is, is, is kind of our test case. That's, that's the, the, the sample that, that we have to, to, to work with. To ask them to become aware of what their interpretive assumptions are, and then to try to engage in that process of differing from themselves, to see when they read the material anew with fresh eyes, whether there isn't something different, some kind of alternative uh, that they can Find there, so they so they learn how to define and articulate what their own assumptions are as human beings about human nature, about religion, uh, about God, and so on and so forth. Uh, and at the same time, to seek out the possibility of seeing things differently. And of course, I think this is what the our, our moral imperative is 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 today. Not necessarily to abandon uh, our own uh, commitments but to achieve that kind of vision where we're possible, where it becomes possible for us to understand them critically and to understand the possibility of, 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 different, of differing sorts of commitments. And I, and I think that uh, when we think about identity as well, this becomes very important. Uh, for us, our identities are often things that we see ourselves as declaring. Uh, we see ourselves as, as building, as constructing, and surely there is a great deal of truth uh, in that kind of flexibility today for defining ourselves. But it's also important to realize uh, the, the depth of the ways in which uh, our identity frequently has been uh, predetermined for us by these sorts of presuppositions, by these sorts of assumptions. And what a project like this enables us to do is to get ourselves exercising around the question of how we read. So we see how does our mind work? How do we read this material? Uh, which exposes, I think, our identity, the nature of our, our identity, uh, as readers, as thinkers, as interpreters, uh, in a very different way uh, than when we usually go about thinking about identity uh, as, as, as more of a, a, a kind of personal choice. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, and thanks for writing this wonderful book. Okay, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for the, the, the chance to speak a little bit about it. 